with our uh, guests. We have special guests, our missionary partners, Sasha and uh, Maria Silvia. I had to get that backwards. Maria Silvia Rasmussen from Argentina. Why don't you guys stand and uh, turn around and uh, wave to everybody so they can see who you are. There they are. Okay. And uh, Sasha, come on up here. And uh, they partner with our uh, good friends and partners, the uh, Masters in Argentina. And uh, four years ago, you guys were here, or actually you were here, single, lonely, searching for love, and God gave him a beautiful, beautiful wife. And uh, amen, partner, partner in ministry. And so we, we need to double your support now, don't we? Yeah, I think so. All right. You share with us the good things that are going on down there, right. Sasha. Well, it's, uh, I'm going to say some cheesy missionary things, but you need to know that I really, truly mean every single word, okay? Um, but I love Glenwood. Glenwood is a special church for me, and I don't just say that because I'm here this morning, right? I say that because, you guys, this church has an amazing missions vision that goes beyond just uh, your support for us as one of the many missionaries that you support, but it's, it's the times that, that Randy calls me up and he says, you know what, we need to do a video, Sasha, I hope that doesn't bother you. And it doesn't bother me because I know that Glenwood is praying for me. I know that Glenwood is, is, is listening to things that are going on and that they, they are a part, you are a part of our ministry. And I am just so thankful to be here this morning. Um, I had kind of an uh, interesting feeling as I walked in the doors. I felt like I was home, but I've only been here four times, you know. And, and, but I really feel like I'm home because you guys make us feel that way. So I just really appreciate the opportunity to come and joyfully share what God has been doing in Argentina in the last uh, three years that we've been on the field. So my wife and I uh, work with youth. We are urban youth missionaries working in a church planting strategy in Cordoba, Argentina. Cordoba is a city of two million people. Very, very dense city, and it has a lot of youth, a lot of kids, and a lot of adolescents, and a lot of college kids. In fact, it has one of the largest universities in all of South America, the University of Cordoba, which is 150,000 students to around 200,000 students. So it's a very strategic place to work in youth ministry and in college ministry. Many of you understand and and already know a lot about our ministry and have heard a lot about our ministry, but I'm going to give a really quick summary, and then I'm going to tell you what God has been doing in the last three years. Um, We work, like I said, with the youth uh, population. We work with adolescents from age 12, and we actually, God kind of gave us, um, expanded our vision while we were there, and we're now working with all the way up to college age, so between 12 and 25. And as I kind of started to be a missionary, I was told that my job is not to continue just to be the youth pastor and and to be that person, but my job is to work myself out of a job, which means that we are supposed to begin to raise up leaders that will reach their own country and their own generation for Christ. And that's what we are aiming to do. So what has gone on in the last three years? Well, we had goals. We had three-year goals, six-year goals, and nine-year goals. Our three-year goals were to start a youth ministry and to develop a strong youth ministry, right? And in that, also to develop a team that would help to minister to the youth, to start youth ministry training with a team of people. And one of the things that we were able to do is to start that youth ministry. We started out with 25 kids. Um, We had already kind of, from an internship that I had had, the church already had um, a ministry started. So we had 25 kids to start out with, and that has grown. If everybody showed up on, one, one, on the same night, we'd have 65 kids. So God has grown numerically our youth ministry. One of the things we noticed is we had kids graduating out of our youth ministry, but they had no place to go as far as a college ministry in um, our church. We had like a college and career, but it was mostly career, like older people, old, and that's fine. It was a great class, but it's like we had 18-year-olds that were like, I don't want to go hang out with the 30-year-olds, right? And so, and, and so we started a new college ministry alongside of my brother-in-law, Maria Silvia's brother, Manuel, and his wife. And that ministry has grown from 10 kids to 25 kids. So overall, we've seen God really multiply um, uh, the in numerically uh, believers and we have uh, on any given Saturday that's when we do our youth group we have probably between 40 and 50 percent of the kids there who are not Christians and we love that percentage that's what we want and we preach the gospel weekly 
We show the gospel weekly in the kids' lives. I kind of told the, the Sunday school that my wife has a text message ministry, right? If you can imagine that. She sends text messages to all of the kids that have come to our youth ministry over time. And what that does is it shows God's faithfulness to them, that we're not going to forget them, that we're going to remember them and that they're a part of our hearts, that we're praying for them and that we want to see them, that we're interest, interested in their lives and that we care for them. And we've seen a lot, of, a lot of kids that end up coming back to our youth ministry after many months just because that we remembered them. And after, after maybe a half a year or a year, they accept Christ as their personal Savior. And I'm happy to report that after three years, we've seen around 20, 20 kids, both college and um, in our youth ministry, receive Christ as a result of being in Cordoba in three years. One of the things that was a goal of ours was um, a youth center. We noticed that in our culture, we had a lot of resistance against our church. People wouldn't come to a church, uh, an evangelical church especially. They kind of had suspicions because maybe of a, a Catholic background or some other things that are going on um, in the name of Christ that really aren't uh, his will, God's will. And so what we wanted to do is kind of break down those barriers. So we knew that they wouldn't, the kids might not come and darken the door of a church, but they would come to a park and play basketball. They would come and play soccer. They would come and play ping pong, and that would give us the opportunity to have contact with them and to begin a relationship for the gospel. And so what we did is we raised some money, and we were able to purchase basketball hoops, ping pong tables, foosball tables, and playstations, and all sorts of stuff. And we didn't have a building, so we just asked the city, can we just do this in the park? So the city gave us permission for four hours, once a month, to go ahead and do a youth center in the park. And we had 150 kids from our neighborhood show up the first time. We had 200 kids show up the second activity. And the joy of this is I was really more thinking this is just going to be a way to get in contact with these kids, to, to just start to love on them to, so that they know who we are, that they can, they can trust us. Um, but we had the opportunity through a team from the U.S. to present the gospel through a drama. And I was kind of fretting a little bit because I thought, well, this is kind of confrontational. Here we are in the public square presenting the gospel openly, and I wondered how they would respond. I thought, well, they're probably, they're probably going to start to make fun. They're probably going to walk away. Um, they're probably never going to come back to the youth center. But I watched in amazement and enjoy 200 youth from our neighborhood watch mesmerized by the gospel and by God's love in that, in that gospel presentation Nobody spoke a word. Nobody left. And afterwards, I didn't, I didn't give an altar call, but I basically summed up the gospel. I said, you know what? There are a lot of things in this world that we think are going to free us. But in reality, they enslave us. And Jesus came to this earth and died on a cross so that we could be free from that. And I saw 200 adolescents from our neighborhood who had never come into a church nod their head in agreement. Because you know what? People know that they need Jesus Christ. They have a rebellion in their heart, but they deep down, they know that they have a need. They know that they're enslaved by these things, and they know that they need Jesus. And so we've seen a hunger for the gospel in Argentina, and God um, has just, and thankful, I mean, we're just thankful that God's using us in that. I want to read a scripture and then sum up this morning, and that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And Paul says, what then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. We honestly feel like God is just allowing us to, to take part in something that he's doing in Cordoba. We feel like we do our very best, but God's the one who is causing the increase. God's the one who's doing the work because we can't touch people's lives. That's the Holy Spirit's job. We don't have any power within ourselves. All we can do is be faithful to what he's called us to do. And I want, I want you guys to know that I see this partnership of Paul and Apollos, although Paul is talking about not, not having heroes in the ministry and not thinking um, that Paul is big, bigger than Jesus, right? But I also see that Paul's talking about a part, partnership there, right? And so as we're down in Argentina, we understand that we're just doing a part of the harvest, that there's a church in Kansas City named Glenwood that has us up on their screen and that prays for us constantly and that reads our updates and that supports us financially monthly and that that vote of confidence and that watering of prayer 
is what also is part that God uses to cause the growth. So I just want to thank you for partnering with us and for being such a huge encouragement to my wife and I um, in the ministry in, in Argentina. We love you guys, and we're after service, if you would like to chat, we will be here as long as it takes to answer questions and to be able to just to, get, to see you guys and, and to get to know some of you that maybe we haven't met. So thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you, Sasha. Good news from Argentina. If you'd grab your Bibles and stand with me this morning for our scripture reading. As Pastor Bruce continues in his series on the cross, today we'll look at the question, what did the cross mean to Jesus? And we'll be using the scripture passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. If you don't have your Bible with you this morning, there are Bibles in the pew in front of you. And it's page 667 in the pew Bibles. What did the cross mean to Jesus from 2 Corinthians chapter 5? Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not in putting their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for the work that you did in sending your son on the cross for us and help us to continue to learn about the cross and impact our lives and change us um, with gratitude and, and awe for the way and the things that you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Come, gaze, and respond. That's what I invite us to do this morning. That's the invitation. As we continue in this series on the cross of Jesus Christ. I invite you to come to the cross and gaze at Jesus' death. As Hebrews 12.2 says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus who endured the cross, scorning its shame. But I also invite you to respond. For it's only in our response that we are truly saved by the power of the cross. And so this morning I ask. Will you open up your heart and your mind to come and gaze and respond? Dr. Ravi Zacharias, uh, I'm sure some of you are familiar with that name, know who he is, others maybe do not. But Dr. Ravi Zacharias is a Christian speaker and apologist who um, has spoken on numerous campuses, college campuses, um, in prestigious universities here in America and even across the world. And uh, he does these seminars, these lectures, if you will, and in part of his lectures and seminars that he does on these uh, public university campuses, he takes the message of the cross and of Jesus Christ. And Dr. Zacharias has encountered more than his share of noisy crowds and people loudly protesting that part of his message. But he said recently that during the last 20 minutes of his typical two-day presentation, when he talks about the cross and what Jesus did there to redeem mankind and to give us hope, that there is silence. Dr. Zacharias said it doesn't matter which university he's visiting because the reaction is basically the same everywhere he goes. The room or lecture hall often becomes so quiet when he's talking about Jesus in the cross, that you can hear the proverbial pin drop. He says that the reason for this is that people are deeply hungry and searching, and they're hungry for reality and hope. It's no different than what Sasha just said. As here that youth group gave the drama, and it was a gospel presentation, I'm sure within that drama was the cross of Christ. And 200 adolescents are mesmerized by it. Just as college kids are mesmerized by the message of the cross and the power that it brings to us, the hope that it gives to us. I find it fascinating that the message of the cross can reduce a large audience to silence. But that's the power of the cross and the message of hope that it brings to our lives. This morning, as we continue in our series, we want to answer again one question. 
And that question is, what did the cross mean to Jesus? For the last couple of weeks, we began and we started with the question, what did the cross mean to God himself? And then last Sunday, we answered the question, what did the cross mean to Satan? Today, we want to focus specifically on Jesus Christ. What did the cross mean to him? But before we answer this question, we kind of need to step back. We need to get a, a bigger picture or perspective of why Jesus died on the cross, which leads us again to the, what we began this whole series with in the first message, and that is the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God. And I say this because you can't really understand the cross without beginning there. That's why we have the cross of Christ. Because of our sinfulness and God's holiness. And that immediately brings us into probably the most important question we can ask ourselves and seek to answer from God's word. And that is then, if you have the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God, how do sinful people like us here this morning, how do we be... How are we reconciled, then, to a holy God? That is the question. It's the question Paul raises in the text that Zach read for us. You may have heard the word as he began in verse 18 and he ended in verse 21. And all through those verses, you heard it three or four times, the word reconciling, reconciliation, reconciling, whatever the tense may be. It's the same thing. It's the same predicament, dilemma. How can sinful people be reconciled to a holy God? What is reconciliation? Without going into uh, an elaborate definition, it simply means to make peace. It means to bring two people together or two parties together. It's the idea of restoring a relationship that has been separated. J.I. Packer defines it this way, to reconcile means to bring together again persons who had previously fallen out, to replace alienation, hostility, and opposition by a new relationship of favor, goodwill, and peace. That's the idea of reconciliation, but why do we need them to be reconciled to God? Why is that our need, my need, and your need? Well, because of our sinfulness. We are separated from God. But folks, listen, it's not just because of our sinfulness, it's also because of God's holiness, He is separated from us. Look what the Bible says again. Or not again, but look what it says in Colossians 1.21 there in your notes. It says, once you were what? Alienated from God. Not just alienated, but he goes on and says, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, because of your sinfulness. In fact, because of our rebellion against God, we're his enemies. The Bible says we are basically at war with God. That is the nature we are born with. We're separated. And we need to be reconciled to God. But there was a time, do you realize there was a time when man didn't need to be reconciled to God? Remember when that time was? You have to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. And the Bible begins with a record of perfect harmony between Adam and Eve and the Creator God. But then sin enters the picture. And immediately within the beginning chapters of Genesis, you see division, dissension, death, and separation. And because of their sin, Adam and Eve run from God, and they try to hide from Him. And as a result, they are now cast out of the Garden of Eden, and they are separated from God. Adam and Eve have two sons. You know the story, Cain and Abel. And before long, brother is killing brother. And man is now separated from man. And eventually, at the Tower of Babel, there is separation of races and nations, as Genesis records, the awful consequences of our sin. Here's the point I want you to understand. Whenever sin enters the picture, whenever sin enters into our life and into the human race, it never brings people together. It only forces them apart. Why? Because sin, listen to me, is the great divider between us and God. And even between people. Listen to what Isaiah writes. In Isaiah 59, 2, he says, but your iniquities, in other words, your sin, have separated you 
from your God. Sin is the great divider between us and God. So the first truth truth we need to understand is because of our sin, we are separated from God. And this truth is illustrated by the picture in your notes or here on the screen. Look at it. You'll notice that we are on one side of the cliff, if you will. And God is on the other side. And in between is the great divide caused by our sin. This illustrates or pictures our lives spiritually. We are on one side and God is on the other. And sin has separated us from God. Which brings us to a second truth. If we stay separated from God, if we stay on the left side of this picture, we will die and remain separated from God throughout all eternity in a place the Bible calls hell. Now we can try to overcome our sin. We can try to overcome our our separation from God on our own through good works, through religion, through morality, it doesn't matter. Let me tell you, man has, be, has tried to overcome it on his own since the beginning of time. Since Adam fell, we've been trying to overcome it on our own. And we always come up short. How many people have tried, and yet they come up short in their own efforts to be reconciled to God? So again, it leads us to the ultimate question, the most important question. How then can we as sinful people be reconciled to a holy God? Well, the answer is this. Notice it. It's made possible by what we're going to call this morning the great exchange. It's made possible by the great exchange on the cross. Reconciliation is made possible because of the initiative that God took through His Son, Jesus Christ. Look again what it says in 2 Corinthians 5. And the key verse that we're going to focus on is verse 21. And reading now the NIV translation, it says, God made Him, that is Jesus Christ, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, Let me tell you, this is one of the most magnificent verses in all the Bible. We immediately think John 3.16, and that's true. That is one of the great verses in the Bible. But so is 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's the heart of the gospel in one verse. In fact, there's 23 words in this verse total. Everything you need to know about how to be reconciled to God can be found in this one verse. Jerry Bridges describes it this way in his book called The Great Exchange. And I quote, he says, The cross where the God-man, Jesus Christ, traded places with the sinners he redeemed, exchanging his perfect righteousness for their sin, condemnation, and death. And you see it in the picture. It is only by the cross that we can be reconciled to God. It's only by the cross that we can be brought together. The answer to our deepest problems in life is not found within ourselves or even outside of ourselves in this world. The answer is always found with Jesus Christ. Jesus came 2,000 years ago not to separate, but to reconcile people back to God who have been separated by their sin. So, by way of introduction, understanding the big picture here of our need, of why Jesus died on the cross, let's begin to laser in on the question. What did the cross mean to Jesus then specifically? How does the cross make it possible now for us to be reconciled to God? Well, it all starts with a perfect sacrifice, number one. It starts with a perfect sacrifice. And that is Jesus had no sin. Jesus had no sin. Paul begins with the fact that Jesus had no sin. Now, some versions, of you may even have some of your Bibles may say, That Jesus knew no sin. And it's simply just stressing a different emphasis there. In this case, knew no sin. He's stressing the sinless nature of his inner being. Where had no sin is stressing the outward aspect of it. Both are the same. Both mean the same. When Jesus walked on the earth, he was totally sinless. He never did anything wrong. He never broke any laws of God. And he never deviated in the slightest degree from God's will. That is amazing. And yet, that is Jesus Christ. You say, well, how do we know Jesus had no sin or knew no sin? 
Well, the Bible tells us so. In fact, when you look at God's word, both believers and even unbelievers verify this. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 4.15 that Jesus was tempted in every way we are, yet he never sinned. Peter says the same thing about Jesus in 1 Peter 2.22. He committed no sin. And then if you want an unbeliever's perspective on this, do you remember when Jesus went before Pilate, Pontius Pilate, in one of the trials before the crucifixion? He's standing before Pilate, and Pilate does what? He examines his life. He questions Jesus. And he comes back before the crowd. And he says, listen, why do you want me to crucify him? Because I find no fault in him. The very testimony of Pilate himself. And so Jesus knew no sin. He had no sin. And this is crucial because if Christ has sinned, listen, he could not be our Savior. You say, well, why is that? Because a sinner cannot pay for the sins of another sinner. God began to reveal that truth to us back in the Old Testament. The sacrifice made by one who was without spot or blemish, like the lamb slain on the night of the Passover in Egypt. God said that the lambs must be one year old. They must be in good health, free from any disease or physical defect. And those lambs that were slaughtered on the night of the Passover were a picture of the coming Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world by his sacrificial death on the cross, as John tells us. So the first thing the cross meant to Jesus is you have to start with the perfect sacrifice. He had no sin. The second thing the cross meant to Jesus is he was the perfect substitute. He was the perfect substitute. Why? Because Jesus became sin for us. Look again what it says in verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 5. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. In other words... Jesus, the sinless Son of God, became sin for us. And immediately, I'm going in my mind, I don't know about your mind, how is that possible? What does that mean? Well, Paul, he's not suggesting that Jesus literally became, quote, a sinner like you and I. This would do away with Jesus being our perfect substitute or our our perfect uh, sacrifice. So then, how did God make Jesus to be sin for us, as Paul says? Well, we have to understand that Jesus, he remained sinless when he became sin for us on the cross. He never committed a sin, and therefore he never became a sinner. And you're like, thanks, Bruce, that really helps me understand. I know, in some sense, listen, this is beyond my understanding. I'm sure it's beyond your understanding how Jesus became sin for us. But perhaps the best way to try to understand this is to say that God treated His very Son as if He were a sinner, thereby becoming our substitute. And we can explain what that means in two phrases here. Look at it in your notes. First of all, to get a better under, try to get an understanding of what this phrase means, it, we do know this. It means Jesus took our penalty on the cross. He became sin for us, in essence, because he took our penalty on the cross. That is, Jesus became our sin bearer. And our sins were counted against Christ's account on the cross. And in so doing, Jesus paid the price that we owed to God. The debt that we could never pay. Speaking of Jesus, 1 Peter 2.22 says, Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the, excuse me, on the tree. So God treated Jesus as if he were a sinner by charging to his account our sins. All our sins were charged against Jesus as if he had personally committed them. And he was punished with the penalty for them on the cross. And in doing that, he experienced the full fury of God's wrath. And, of course, it was at that moment that Jesus, as he hung on the cross, bearing the weight of our sins, that he cried out with a loud voice, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time in eternity, 
Jesus experienced a sense of alienation, separation from His Father. Why? So that we might be reconciled, brought back together to God in a restorative relationship. Look what Isaiah 53, 6 says. It says, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And then notice the next phrase. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on his son the sins of all of humanity. Here's how one author illustrates that this concept, this idea that Jesus bore our sins, he took our penalty. He says, let's suppose that all your sins have been written down in one massive book. This book is heavy. <laughs> Why? Well, because it records every rotten thing you've ever said, every un- unkind word you've ever spoken, every mean thought, every lustful fantasy, every evil imagination, and all your bad attitudes and wrong actions from the day of your birth till the day of your death. So here you are, picture yourself trying to hold up this massive book in your hands. How heavy would your book be? Be pretty heavy, wouldn't it? More than you could bear. Now picture Jesus standing next to you. Jesus is holy. He's perfect. He's sinless. And he has no book in his hands because he has never sinned. There's no record of his sins. And oh, how you wish you could get rid of your massive, heavy book because it's weighing you down. But you can't seem to find a place to put it down. So what will you do? Now picture Jesus on the cross with the weight of billions of books upon his bleeding back. He bears that crushing weight as long as he can, and then he takes his last breath and dies. Look closely, and you will see that each book is the personal record of someone who lived on earth. And if you look a little more closely, you can see your book is there too. Jesus took the record of all your sins upon himself when he died on the cross. Truly the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He bore it on the cross when he died. So the first way Jesus became sin for us was by paying our penalty on the cross. The second way is he took our place on the cross. He not only paid the penalty, but he took our place. When Jesus died on the cross, he took my place and he took your place. Galatians 3.13, look what it says. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. The just, who is Jesus, for the unjust, that's you and I, that he might bring us to God. There's the reconciliation part. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. This is why Jesus is our perfect substitute. He died in the place of guilty sinners like me, like you. Think about it. I mean, Jesus endured the scourging that should have shred my back. The crown of thorns should have been on my head. Those nails should have been pounded into my hands and feet. The spear should have pierced my side. It should have been me hanging on that tree. Why? Because I'm the one who's guilty of sin, not Jesus. And yet it was Jesus dying in my place. And in that, quote, great exchange, God took my sin and he placed it on Jesus. And he paid the price. He paid the penalty for my sins. When Jesus died on the cross, his shed blood paid the price to set us free from sin so that we might be reconciled to God. If you've seen the movie Mel Gibson, this, I think it came out a few years ago, like in 2003, 2004. How many saw the movie, The Passion? It was rated R simply because of the reality of it and the, the bloodiness of it. The shed blood. 
A lot of people squirm at the notion of the shed blood of Christ. How could God even allow that to happen to his son? C.J. Mahaney, who is a, he was a pastor, now he's an author and speaker, and he's written several books, and he tells the following story in his book, Living the Cross-Centered Life. Listen to what he says. He, she was what psychologists call a, quote, cutter. And a friend of mine who's a pastor wrote me a letter in which he described an unforgettable counseling session with this troubled young woman. It was her mother who had asked for the meeting. She related how her oldest daughter had been in the emergency room four times so far that year. Three times she had cut herself so deeply that stitches were required. Another time she had taken a bottle of pills, survived, and was detained in a psychiatric ward for teenagers. Now back at home, her daughter had cut herself again. The pastor agreed to meet with the daughter. The next day, the woman's daughter walked into his office. She wore an oversized turtleneck sweater with sleeves that went down almost completely over her hands. After a time of gentle questions and listening, the conversation turned to the cutting. She said that when she was upset with herself or upset over the offenses of other people, she cut herself. It seemed to relieve the tension that she felt in the room. Cleaning up from the bloody wound distracted her from all the other problems around her and within her. She pulled up her sleeve and showed me her arm, and I don't think I will ever forget the sight. The image stayed in my mind for days. What could I do? How could I help this young lady? All I really knew about biblical counseling was to pray for people and to tell them about the gospel. And so the pastor pulled out a pad of paper, and he drew out for the young woman a diagram of the gospel, much like what is in your notes. And he agreed with her that blood can indeed solve problems. But pointed out that the blood did not have to be her own blood. And that the cutting had already been done for her on her behalf when Jesus died on the cross. Folks, listen to me. It's true. It requires the precious blood of Jesus Christ to solve our very worst problems in life. If you take away the blood of Jesus Christ, you take away the essence of our salvation. As Hebrew 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of our sins. But thankfully, Jesus, he is our perfect substitute. We don't have to shed the blood. He's the perfect substitute who took our place on the cross and paid our penalty with his blood. Now, let's be honest. We will never fully understand this great exchange on the cross, will we? I mean, if someone says, man, that just doesn't make sense to me. I agree with them. It doesn't make sense. From our point of view, we can't fathom this kind of sacrifice. And yet, that's how much God loves us. And that's why Jesus, number three, is the perfect Savior. Jesus paid the price so we might become the righteousness of God. Listen, this is what we all need. This is what everybody needs. The righteousness of God in Christ. We need to be made right with God. Do you realize that's what the word righteousness means? To be made right with God. A right standing before God. We need to have the record of our sins cleared. We need to know that there's nothing between us and God. And theoretically, listen, there are only two ways to be made righteous or to be made right with God. The first way is, you, is to be born without a sin nature. And then to live a sinless life from the time you are born until the time you die. Does anybody qualify? That's what I thought. So then, how are we going to be made right? How are we going to attain righteousness? Well, the second way to be right with God is to exchange our sinfulness for Christ's righteousness on the cross. Theologians have a term for this exchange. They call it imputation. Don't let that word scare you. It's, just, it's, it's literally a banking term. 
it means that when we trust Christ, our sin is credited to Christ's account. And his righteousness is credited to my account. In other words, Christ takes our debt of sin. And you know what I get? I get his righteousness. His credit of righteousness. He paid what we owe and could never pay. And he gives us what he has and we could never earn. That is righteousness. Charles Spurgeon once said, you could find a hundred books that say that is impossible. Skeptics call this a, a legal fiction. I mean, how can the righteousness of one man be given to another man? That's impossible. After all, I cannot literally take your sin, and you cannot literally take my righteousness. Well, the answer to the dilemma is profoundly simple. With man, all things are impossible, but with God, all things are possible. You say, I can't accept this. Then you will never be saved. For there is no salvation apart from the great exchange on the cross. Because receiving Christ's righteousness by faith is what salvation is all about. Let me say this as plainly as I can. There is nothing... Nothing except your sin, my sin, that stands between you and God. God's wrath has been turned away. We saw that in the first message. It was turned away in the death of his son on the cross. God's justice has already been satisfied with his son's death on the cross. And now we can be reconciled to God through Jesus' work on the cross. He took our place. He paid our penalty. But listen, we must respond to it. It doesn't happen automatically, this great exchange. Notice in your notes how to make this personal in your life. Look at it. You must trust You must trust Jesus Christ as your Savior to exchange your sinfulness for Christ's righteousness and thereby be reconciled to God for all eternity. In the book, In the Shadow of the Cross, Ray Pritchard shares this story. He says, about eight years ago, I received a letter from an international student, a young lady from Japan, who had been attending church for a short time. And this is what she writes. Dear Pastor, I've come to your church about two months. I began to read the Bible by myself, and I want to be a Christian. Can I be a Christian? However, I don't know how to be a Christian. Would you tell me how? And here's the part of what he wrote back to her in a letter. You asked, can I be a Christian? The answer is yes, you can be a Christian. The most important thing I can say is that being a Christian means having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In order to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you must trust him as your Savior. Does that sound strange? I hope not. Already you know much about Jesus. But the most important thing to know about Jesus is that he died on the cross for your sins. That is, when he died on the cross, he took your place. You should have died there. But he died in your place as your substitute. And by his death, he paid the price for all your sins. He goes on in his letter and he says this. That's a lot to think about. You don't have to fully understand it, but you do have to believe it. That's what trusting is. It's staking your life upon something you believe to be true. Trusting Jesus Christ means staking your life upon the fact that when he died on the cross, he really did pay the price for your sins, and he really did take your place. So, do you believe that Jesus died for you? Are you willing to stake your life upon that fact? If you are ready to trust Jesus as your Savior, then you can be a Christian. Let me give you a simple prayer he writes at the end of his letter to pray. This prayer is not magic, he says. You should only pray it if it expresses the real desire of your heart. 
But if it does, then you can pray this prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for paying the penalty for my sins. I believe you are the Son of God and the Savior of the world. I trust you as my Savior. Please come into my life and help me to live a life that will be pleasing to you. Thank you for saving me. Amen. You know, in this series, we've been asking questions. What does the cross mean to God? What does the cross mean to Satan? What does the cross mean to Jesus? But the most important question, to be honest with you, is the question, what does the cross mean to you? Like this international student from Japan, have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? If you go back to the front page of your notes, you'll see that second diagram. And we're on one side separated from God, and God is on the other side with his gift of eternal life. And in the middle is the cross of Jesus Christ. And let me ask you, which side are you on? As you look at that picture, which side of the cross are you on at this moment in your life? And if you're wondering, man, I, I want to cross over. I, I want to be reconciled to God. How do I do that? It's simple. Trust. You must put your faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross for you. Exchanging your sinfulness for Christ's righteousness. Have you done that? Listen, today you can do just that. Today you can trade your sinfulness for Christ's righteousness at the cross. Today you can trade your separation from God for reconciliation with God at the cross. Are you willing to cross over by faith? Terry, why don't you come on up? She's going to come and during our response time here. She's going to sing, and this is the time to respond. You know, I don't know where you are spiritually in your life, in relationship with God. Perhaps you're here this morning, and you're still separated from God because your sin stands in the way. Listen, my prayer is that God, even now, through his spirit and his word, is gripping your heart. And that while Terry is singing... Right where you're seated, you will cry out to him in a simple prayer. A prayer like this Chinese, this Japanese student read or prayed. This could be the day of your salvation, of you crossing over and being reconciled to God through the great exchange on the cross. Will you respond this morning as Terry sings? To see the King of Heaven fall in anguish to His knees. The light and hope of all the world now overwhelmed with grief. What nameless horrors must He see? to cry out in the garden oh take this cup away from me yet not my will but yours yet not my will but yours
Till wrath and love are satisfied And every sin is paid And every sin is paid Terry. What a great song. You know, it's a great song because we have a great Savior and what He did on the cross. Again, you know, my heart's desire and prayer is that every one of us here this morning would examine ourselves in relation to Christ. Are we separated or are we reconciled? God's desire for you is to be reconciled with Him. That's why Jesus died on the cross for you. I wish I could make that decision for you. I wish I could trust in Christ for you, but I can't. We must come to the cross. We must gaze at Jesus, and you as an individual must respond. It's up to you.